everyone. This is Liz Easton, and I wanted to take a quick second to invite you to listen in to the PC Book Club. <laughs> Wait, I need to start again. <laughs> Hi, everyone. This is Liz Easton, and I wanted to take a quick second to invite you to listen to the PC Book Club, a.k.a. PCBC. Every so often, Ricardo Avila and I chat about the books that you should be reading right now. It's just like sitting on your own private book club discussion, only there's probably slightly more references to true crime and Charles Dickens. <laughs> I did not write this. <laughs> um, we may have to re-record that anyway, because I think you just said it's just like sitting on your own <laughs> private book club. She did. That was great. Sitting on a book club. Sitting on a private book club. That's pretty racy. Sorry. Should I try again? It's just like sitting in on your own private book club discussion, only there's probably slightly more references to true crime and Charles Dickens. So if you're looking for the class with an occasional dose of the sass, then check out the PC Book Club right here on the Popping Collars feed. Class and sass. Love it. <laughs> I was praying to the Lord for some fun. My name's Greg Knight, and I like watching, thinking about, and talking about movies. One of the great things about starting your own podcast is that there are some days where you actually get to talk to the creators of those movies. This is one of those days. This month, I got the chance to talk to Jesse Moss, who, along with his wife, Amanda McBain, is one of the directors of a new documentary called The Mission. Letterboxd.com will tell you... American Christian missionary John Chow was murdered when he tried to illegally contact and convert some of the world's last uncontacted indigenous people. Through exclusive interviews and archival footage of John's journey, the mission explores themes that strike deep at the heart of religion, colonialism, and anthropology, questioning where we draw the line between faith and fanaticism, exploration and exploitation, imagination, and destruction. What I'll tell you is that my heart was in my throat when I first saw the trailer for this film. This is a documentary that I have thought about and puzzled over a lot since watching it for the first time. It is a haunting film where the ghosts of the past make you question what you know in the present. So what happens when the directors of Boys State tackle the ethics of evangelical mission work around the globe? Find out as I keep things under the stole with Jesse Moss. But before we chat, here's a trailer for the film. My friend John paid some pirates to go to an island to talk to people about Jesus when he knew they had no business doing that. John's parents brought him up to be Christian. He was just like full of light. I had a little bit of a crush on him. You couldn't have asked for a better young man. He reminds me of who I wanted to serve with. He told me his plan was to go live in the middle of the jungle. It didn't sound that bad. I thought that John would get accepted. 
people whose language no one speaks, whose culture no one knows. There's a fine line between faith and madness. Once he found out about that tribe, he knew he was gonna go all in. John was telling his story. I'm a climber, I'm an adventurer. Here we are, hiking out. If things don't go well, he wanted to look like a young, arrogant, Western person, did a stupid thing, and move on. John said to me, this is what the plan looks like. Have it right here. There's so many ways the seductions of this story can go wrong. This idea of people who exist out of time, that erases their humanity. These cultures that are isolated, when we cross that boundary, we're saying your prohibition means nothing to us. That there's a group that we would decide, sorry, you don't get to hear about Jesus. That's a violation of their human right. John did exactly what Jesus told him to do. John was pursuing a fantasy in discerning the call. We can mess it up. My friend did something stupid and courageous and bold, and I wish I was that bold. So I always start off these conversations the same way. One, because I like stories. And uh, two, because I'm really curious about where this comes from. So what was it that happened to you in your life? What was the moment where you thought, this is what I want to do? I want to make films. I want to create art. I think um, my decision to, to, to make documentaries comes from seeing a film. Actually, um, in some ways... It's not unrelated to this project. I saw it about 25 years ago, and I was in Washington, D.C. in a former life as a political aide on Capitol Hill. And my intern invited me to a documentary film screening. And it was a great director, a woman named Christine Choi, was showing a film called Who Killed Vincent Chin? Mm. About um, uh, it's, a, it's a famous film, was nominated for an Oscar about a, a Chinese-American man who was mistaken for a Japanese immigrant and beaten to death by some out of work auto workers in Detroit. And it was, um, it's just an incredibly complicated, profound movie. And I saw it and I, I just was like struck by the form. What is this? It's political, it's artistic, it's journalism, it's kind of everything. Mm -hmm. And it has a lot to say about our world, but it, it has incredible artistry and an emotional power. And I asked my intern to introduce me to that filmmaker and, um, I ended up moving to New York to go to work for her. And that's the beginning of my film journey. That's awesome. Um, I want to ask you about this movie. <clears throat> well, I, I feel like I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions that you've probably already gotten a lot already. But I mean, the thing that naturally comes to mind is what what led you to this story? What led you to John's story? And why did you want to tell this? Well, I didn't grow up in the church. Um, in fact, um, sort of willfully never set foot in a church until I was in my early 40s and ended up making a film in the North Dakota oil field about a pastor in a Lutheran church in a uh, oil boom town called Williston who opened the doors of his church to help and to house these unemployed men who were looking for work. And I just kind of accidentally found my way to this pastor and his church. And I slept in the church. I spent 18 months in this town following this pastor for reasons that I, I took me a while to make sense of, but I think I was just incredibly moved by his decision to live his faith in such a profound way. And he, 
He put himself in conflict with his congregation, with his neighbors, with the town that he lived in, because this is what he felt like was the way for him to truly be, to, to live the teachings of Jesus. And this was a kind of religious education. It didn't turn me into a Christian, but it was, um, I connected with Jay and this, the moral questions that he was wrestling with and what his responsibility to this, to these needy people was. And, and um, I think it kind of opened me up to a conversation, which we're still having and what actually inspired Amanda and myself, my Amanda's my wife and creative partner to, to try to understand John Chow and, and how he lived his faith and what the consequences of his choices were and, and what the bigger conversation around John really is. Yeah. I mean, so the challenge of this documentary, I would have to think is that you want to tell this story, but you don't have footage, right? I mean, that's, I mean, that's, it's almost the opposite of what usually with a documentary you have too much footage. Mm -hmm. And this one, you're probably sort of grasping at how do we tell this story when we don't have a lot of stuff to work with here. Absolutely. That that absence was a real challenge, but also an exciting challenge for us. Um, the film I mentioned, The Overnighters, that I made about this pastor was really made from the inside out. I was closely observed, cinema verite. And that's the way we love to make films. I love to make films that way. This was the opposite. This was from the outside. And John is dead. Um, he left only fragments um, and and is hard to access in so many ways. I think that Amanda and I wanted to to lean into this challenge in a way, both the challenge of what the story is about, but also the formal challenge of trying to make sense of the story through these shards um, that we could glean, that we could dig up. Um, and we hoped that 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 in the absence we would find in, or or we would be forced to invent new ways of telling the story, and I think that's what we found. Um, I think it was in leaning into the challenge. It led us to un unexpected voices in the film who could pri provide perspective on John Chow. Um, John and his com John's community is pretty guarded, and not that was a challenge too of access. Um, some people didn't want to speak to us. Some um, members of the family didn't want to engage with us. Um, there was some suspicion. And um, so we had to work around those um, those challenges and also the paradox of John, the fact that he left so much on social media, but also hid so much from us. Mm -hmm. So I think in in confronting those challenges, we found our way to voices like Dan Everett, the a missionary who provides so much context to this story. Uh, we found our way to new forms of visual storytelling like animation, which is not something we'd ever um, tried before, but felt uniquely suited for parts of this story. Um, yeah, I think it, 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 it ended up really challenging us, but in a good way. Yeah, that's like, I've never really thought about documentary filmmaking as puzzling like putting together a puzzle before, but I guess that's right. Um, not to compare and contrast your films because I want to focus on this, but, you know, just thinking of Boy State and mm. how, you know, with that, you're trying to piece together. Okay, so how are these boys being formed in this context, right? Um, and sort of puzzling your way through that. This seems to be, yeah, this sort of getting at who who is John I wonder, do you feel like you do you feel like you captured it? Do you feel like you got you got him? Because it seems like he's a lot of different people at once. <laughs> you know, he's a different person to his friends than he is to his dad and stuff like that. Do you feel like you got him? 
I'll leave that to the audience. Um, I, I think we we turned over every stone and and I think we we did our best. Um, I think that it opened up the film to provide alter egos. We called them alter egos. These people who had gone on similar missions, mm-hmm. religious missions, a historian who went to a North Sentinel Island as a young man, uh, an Indian anthropologist who visited the island. These are all people who are older now, who, who as young people did something similar to what John did and have perspective and can help us fill in the, the missing facets um, of John. So I think I feel good about, I feel like we ended up with a structure and a kind of mosaic of John and the many Johns that um, I'm, I'm really happy with, you know, um, I suspect that, that, you know, only John himself could tell us, you know, what, what, what he's truly withholding. For example, one question we wrestled with is John seems to have had very little doubt almost no doubt for 10 years, he was unswerving in his dedication to this mission. And that seems almost inhuman to me. And and there must be fissures and fragments of slivers of doubt. And and I, I, th- we, I think that the diary which he left, which survived him in his death, was left with a fisherman who transported him to the island. It's incredibly anguished, um, detailed, um, the closest we get to knowing John and I think figuring out what to do with the diary in our film, how to use it to, to visualize this moment of contact between John and the Sentinelese. I think that that's about as close as we get to John. I'm curious, uh, when you saw the plan for the first time, you know, John writes out this amazing sort of like, you know, just document where he he makes a map of the Sentinelese. He, he has like this mission statement and all of these different things. Did you think, um, wow, what an amazingly prepared young man or there's something may not be quite right. <laughs> like, <laughs> Absolutely. I think I think it's both. It's really that's the paradox of John yeah. is the intelligence, the meticulous planning and preparation, the very you know, relatable human qualities as someone who loved life. He loved the outdoors. He loved to camp and to hike. He had friends who were religious and friends who were secular. Um, if you look at his Instagram, you'll be like, that seems like a cool dude. Like mm-hmm. could have been my buddy. We could have gone camping together. And that's certainly how I felt looking at, at, at his public presentation, but there was parts of him that were hidden. And the master plan is one of those parts. It's what he wrote to prepare to provide to his um, supporters, um, people who he was raising money from, and organizations who he was asking to support him, and it's really it's like a really good book report. You know, it's yeah. it's also like a business plan. It has a manifesto to uh, to go where none have gone was like his slogan, and um, it makes it makes sense for what John was doing, and and but 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 it also it there's it, it's. The paradox is that it it it's so naive in so many ways. Like he really didn't understand, and no one could who who this tribe, this community is that lives on the island, what their history is. Only only a, a few things are known about them, and he 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 did know that they there was a colonial history in this island chain, the Andaman. So he was not unaware of that, and he quarantined. He was aware of the disease risk that he could bring them, but. Um, there's a kind of naivete which is touching, and that's why we used comic a comic book style panels to actually illuminate or to bring to life some parts of his master plan to show this is what he thought would happen. This is what he dreamed would happen. And the truth is that has happened to some missionaries. And he was also aware that some missionaries were killed. So he I think he 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 believed that the, uh, he was in the palm of the Lord's hands to use 
um, a phrase that Adam Goodhart says in the film. And um, he had love in his heart. Uh, it's what he thought he was bringing them and, and that things would work out. Um, I'm always, every time I talk to documentary filmmakers, I'm always impressed with there's, there seems to be an element in every project where you are surprised by something as you're like, all of a sudden something comes to light and you feel like you've made a discovery. Was there something that you were surprised by on this project? Absolutely. Um, one startling discovery for us was that the movie King Kong, uh, directed by Marion Cooper, um, the seeds of King Kong are actually in the Andaman Islands. Marion Cooper had gone there in the 1920s as a cameraman and shot this newsreel called, it's called a few different things, but called Cannibal Island in our documentary. And it's it's sensational and defines these people, these tribes as like headhunters and cannibals and exotic savages. And, and it's so much of how people indigenous communities were looked at in the early part of the 20th century. And Marion Cooper goes there, he, he photographs these people, he gets the idea for Skull Island and for King Kong from from meeting these people. And this Kong is such a foundational myth for our culture in the 20th century and movies. It's just remarkable the degree to which this small island chain and the island of North Sentinel itself is a kind of locus focal point for so much of the mythology that westerners have constructed around tribes that and 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 i think the king king kong detail being the sort of most vivid example of that so i don't think anybody had put those made those connections until we started digging digging around the john chow king kong north sentinel island mm. sort of convergence um so I'm thinking about your movie. <laughs> I'm thinking about it from an SEO perspective and this idea of titling it the mission. Um, because there's already a famous movie called The Mission. Were you thinking about that when you titled this movie? Were you thinking um that this stands in conversation with the De Niro movie at all? That's always a consideration. I think naming a film is an art form and not not one I claim to have mastered. Um, <clears throat> there there was a double meaning to the mission, of course, which we liked for this particular story. It's pithy, um, you know, the religious mission, but also the kind of mission impossible aspect of it. Um, the, the the film is um, the 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 Hollywood mission is probably old enough that I mean, some certainly people of my generation know it. Um, there was an alternate title which we debated. I'll I'll share it with you. It's I haven't we haven't really talked about it before, but but it was um, I was interested in the title, the tip of the spear, mm. be, because it also has a double meaning. I mean, John, you hear John himself, John describe himself as the arrow point um, on the spear shaft, and his father says the same thing about him. Of course, that's what killed him mm -hmm. is the, is the arrow tip on a spear that was hurled at him by presumably a, a member of this tribe. That was maybe a bit provocative um, and might have differentiated ourselves for, for the SEO focused um, from, from the De Niro, Jeremy Irons film, right? Which we looked at, we actually had, there was maybe a, a, a cut of the film where we excerpted a small moment from that, that film. Um, so I think it's certainly, I mean, this is a film that's in conversation with a lot of our culture about missionary work, about adventure and enchantment mm -hmm. about um, stories of, of young boys who survive heroically in the wilderness. It's in conversation with Tintin, you know, stories. I think that was a discovery for us that John was influenced not just by scripture and by the Great Commission and by stories of missionaries like Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, who died in Ecuador in the 1950s, but by books that I read 
religiously and like Tintin. I read every Tintin from cover to cover many times. And um, who, who, who couldn't be charmed by Tintin's adventures? And John fell under that spell. I fell under that spell. I think it was finding a connection with John. That was one way we did it. We did it through Patrick Chow's letter, his father's letter to, to to himself, really, about John's death. I think we, Amanda and I are parents. We have two teenagers. And I think we connected with that on a kind of universal emotional level. I was impressed with how uh, how much access you had to the folks um, that sort of helped John uh, on this mission, mm -hmm. the, the uh, mission organization folks that did the training and... Uh, some of his friends from the church and stuff like that. When you were talking to them, did any of them feel culpable for John's death at all? Um, I found it frustrating that they did not. Wow. Um, particularly all nations. Um, I think they feel that they did their due diligence. They asked themselves, does John have the Messiah complex? That's the word. That's the term they use. Um, and, and they came to the answer, the conclusion that he, he did not. Now, here's what I would ask you. If John didn't have it, who has it? Right. Now, I think we know from looking at John and talking to his friends and, and reading the words he wrote that he he was not a delusional person. You know, he was a very centered, rational, intelligent person. So I guess I, I do understand that, but I do have to wonder about their evaluative process. Um, I think most mission org organizations don't send unmarried men to. I think it's somewhat unusual. I think All Nations is more on the extreme in the kinds of work they support. So I, I I guess I I was frustrated that we couldn't speak directly to Bobby Parks, his friend, um, his supporter. Bobby was with him in the Andamans right before he went to his death. Bobby um, was reluctant to speak with us. I don't know if Bobby feels any regret, responsibility for John's death. Yeah, it seems like um, you know you're you're talking about. Um sort of the influences on John's life and this idea of adventuring magazines and all of that stuff. But also like, you know, this fire, the, the flames of this fire get fanned at some point by um, organizations like this that say, Oh no, this is totally normal. This is fine. And, um, and, you know, you would hope that there would be some sort of rational voice in the mix saying, John, let's think about this. You know, let's sit down and really talk about this. I think the closest um, we get to that rational voice is his young pastor, Cameron Silsby, in the film, who ever so gently is questioning John. Um, is this really what the Lord is asking you to do? Is this the best use of your young labors? Um, I'm glad pa uh, Pastor Silsby was willing to open up about that conversation and to see that there was some questioning on John's part about, is this really what I am called to do? Mm -hmm. And John came to the conclusion in conversation with Cameron Silsby and I guess with himself that this was indeed his mission. There's a question that's bubbling up and I'm not sure how to ask it. And so I'm trying to, I'm trying to uh, strategize in my mind, but you know, I think that when you were talking about King Kong and um and Tintin, some of those portrayals and stuff, there's a colonial aspect to that, right? It's it's a which is very much a white sort of explorer story. Um, you know, there's an aspect of this that feels like it's akin to the way that um this country, uh, America thought of the frontier and westward expansion, um, as if there was some divine right that you know, white 
Christian influence needed to be in these spaces, understanding that John is a person of color, that this is a, you know, this isn't quite a one-to-one, but do you think that there's an element of that too, where, you know, there's the sense of we need to turn the world into an American Christian organization, you know, like, is that part of this? Yeah. I mean, I think that's true in our history. I mean, that those impulses have been tethered together um, and done a lot of damage in the world and shaped our worldview for the worse. Um, I think there's a reckoning now that, that we are engaged in, certainly Canada's engaged in, and their relationship with the indigenous community there. There's a lot of interesting reporting now about Indian schools in the United States. Um, I don't think we anticipated the degree to which this conversation about John would kind of fold back on ourselves collectively and provide insight into these questions. And um, some of the organizations like National Geographic themselves who have shaped our, call it colonial worldview, or at least how we think about other cultures, non-Western cultures. And, you know, in, in that geo, the great thing about having them as a partner in this film is that they were really open to scrutinizing their own coverage of the Sentinelese and the magazine. Um, and it was impossible to tell the story without that freedom, because that's really part of the story. And in fact, John's father, Patrick, acknowledges his son's own impulse as having a kind of colonial overtone. Um, and and John was not unaware of this, too. Um, and you see that in the, in the stories that he had taken in, you know, that's sort of the presentation of in the early 20th century, it's a nightmare that these tribes are, are as we talked about with Cannibal Island, they're cannibals. But it, but you know, in the latter part of the 20th century, there's a sort of uh, a romantic fantasy that that like you, the modern Westerner, can sort of live among them and learn from them, and they can learn from you, and you have great technology to give them, and because you've kind of mastered the modern world and that whole conception of um, kind of mo- that, you know we're modern and they're not, which is called into question in the film too by. Um, Adam Goodhart is, is a really interesting one. Um, and I think that we're not above this as documentary filmmakers, as anthropologists, you know, going to other places, other cultures, extracting stories, extracting, in John's case, souls, you know, we're extracting. And, and, and often, as Adam, much more eloquent than I am, points out, you know, often what 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 North Sentinel represents is a stage that people have always stepped onto to enact a kind of fantasy for them about themselves, and it has nothing to do with the Sentinelese, you know, right. really. Right. Uh, so that's um, I think that notion does inform how we think about our colonial history um, and our notions of modernity, and I think there's a great recognition now. This is a more philosophical thought but that you know as as our own ability to live in equilibrium with the earth is called into question and threatened you know i think we're sort of romanticizing a new hunter-gatherer tribes who have who found things and sustained a way of living that we can't even aspire to now like those and but i think i also i i I will this is a long answer because it's a complicated question really but i will plead guilty to hungering for some meaning that must lie, I imagine lies within North Sentinel Island. And, and it's this unmapped, mysterious place. What does it represent, you know, as a, as a modern person, uh, as we reckon with, if we're not religious, kind of where did we come from, you know, and, and what are the mysteries of the world that remain out there? For me, it's not the afterlife or, you know, it's not faith sort of, but there are mysteries. And I think that's what, what 
in accounting for why this story was so powerful for people, why it grabbed people's attention. It's not just the extremity of John and the fact that this tribe, but there, there's something symbolic in the meaning of what this place represents. And I'm still trying to make sense of that. I'm just, I'm reminded of, you know, how scripture gets misused and misinterpreted. And this idea of, you know, Jesus saying, go into all the world as if there's any comprehension in the ancient world of what go into all the world means, you know, it's just so, it seems so foolish uh, looking at it from a 21st century uh, through 21st century eyes that we can do something like that. Um, I'm curious, since you've done a deep dive into sort of mission work and mission thinking, do you think that there's an ethical approach to mission? Do you think that's even possible? I think that's a great question and um, one that animated this project. And I put to people and didn't haven't yet found the answer, or at least an answer I could put in the film, which is what does good mission work look like? I mean, I'll say also from personal experience, having worked in far-flung corners of the world, I've seen the work of, for example, Christian Blind Mission in Tanzania and providing health care in impoverished communities where no one else is providing it. Like, I've seen that work up close. So I'm, I'm not... Um, I'm open. I'm open to 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 be shown that or to, to have that explained to me. Um, and, and under what circumstance, in what ways can mission work be done ethically? I guess also I fall back on the overnighters also to 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 see that's not mission work by definition, but but it, in in a way it was practiced. And and I think I watched Pastor Jay struggle with this question of how much to ask of these men to proselytized to them? Did he demand they come to Sunday service or not? You know, these, you know, was it enough just to provide them care and compassion and support, you know, and, and let them find their way to the gospel in their own way, in their own time? I mean, I, I, so I, I, that's a great question. And, and, um, um, I don't know, maybe, you know, better. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope, I, I, I think that you're, your film helps us think through um, some of those questions a little bit. And so I just wanted to say thank you so much for your time and congratulations on this movie. And um, where can people find, uh, find the mission if they want to check it out? The mission is in theaters now um, around the country and you can check your local market. And then in December it will be on Disney plus uh, and part of the national geographic thumbnail tab part of, of Disney plus. So it, it'll be, hopefully available to to everybody who wants to find it out there. And, and um, I hope they do. I hope people watch it. And I've been a big fan of your films. I loved Boys State. I love this movie. So um, congratulations and thank you so much. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, I appreciate it. Okay. Take care. 